I'm Valerie Earnshaw. And I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with Drs. Seth Kalichman and Lisa Eaton, who are professors at the University of Connecticut. Seth is also the editor of AIDS and Behavior, which is a popular journal for sex and drug science, and Lisa is an associate editor. Now, guys, this episode is creaky. Seth was sitting in a very creaky chair. So the way to think about it is when Seth got more excited about what he was talking about, he moved or rocked his chair a little bit more. So if you don't hear the creak, that's because Seth was not interested in what we were speaking about. Right. So we hope that you bear with us on this and just know that the most interesting parts are going to be a little bit creaky today. Seth and Lisa, so happy to connect with you two today. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Happy so to be here. You are this tremendous science team. I feel like this is really like, you know, science squad goals right here. <laughs> I really admire how you work together and I'm just, I'm excited to be able to, you know, talk to you both today at the same time for this podcast. So thanks so much for making the time. Well, thank you. So yeah, I, thought, I thought that maybe we could rewind to the beginning and, and talk about how we got interested in HIV research. So maybe starting off with Seth, how did you get into the field of HIV research? Well, that was a long time ago. Um, so I, uh, I actually, as a, uh, as a graduate student, wasn't interested in HIV at all. I was aware of it. This was back in the um, in the 1980s, and so uh, you know HIV was just coming to be uh, the the national problem that it uh, that it is, the global problem that it is. Um, and I was aware of it, but it was uh, really uh, in my mind and in our national reality was a gay men's disease. And what I was interested in was um, uh, two things. I was interested in cancer and the psychological aspects of um, dealing with cancer and cancer treatment decision-making and um, how you sort of navigate coping with cancer. That was really the direction that I was going in. Um, and I taught as a graduate student, uh, a course in human sexuality at the University of South Carolina to a large number of students. So in human sexuality, there was, we did cover AIDS, um, but it was less than a page in the textbook and it was a, a gay men's disease that really wasn't something that we, we spent very much time on. But I'm a clinical psychologist and I went on my clinical internship uh, and um, by just by chance I was assigned to, I didn't request to work with a guy who was doing HIV prevention research, and this was in 1989. And um, when I met him and saw the work that he was doing, it was obvious to me that um, he was a real pioneer and that the work he was doing was really important. Um, uh, and that, that uh, the things that I was interested in at that time, actually, I became interested in sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, I thought I might be going in the direction of a forensic psychologist uh, as much as a health psychologist. So I wasn't really certain where I'd end up. 
And as soon as I met him and saw the work that he was doing, I just dropped everything else and never looked back. So I started working with Jeff Kelly, uh, who turns out is a pioneer in HIV prevention and HIV prevention research, and um, just wanted to become him. And now here you are, editor of AIDS and Behavior, <laughs> well-known HIV social behavioral scientist. So maybe you're not Jeff Kelly, but you are the Seth Couchman. So well done. I said you're the first person that we've interviewed who has their own Wikipedia page. I do. Wait, isn't this, I, I do. Yeah. Isn't this your like second podcast? I uh, well, I didn't know. I don't. I didn't know that. I, I did. Although I think that the AIDS denialist actually set up my. So I don't really know what's on there. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> We're going to get on and update it with everything we learn after this. I, I guess I should probably take a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So eventually you land, you know, you move around a little bit and eventually you land at the fantastic University of Connecticut and you're teaching there. And so, so Lisa, how did you, did you become connected with Seth when you were an undergraduate? I know that you worked together when you were a grad student. Yes, I did. Um, I, I, well, I had a lot of interests. I had a lot. I think I started as like an equestrian sciences major. <laughs> and that you're a horse science major? <laughs> Criminology, maybe. Nursing. But there was no, but I had never, I mean, I think the type of work that we all do you don't get exposure to it's not it's not I don't think like as a 10 year old it's an obvious job path right um but part of me and maybe this is just me being like egocentric but I'm like who like who wouldn't be interested in like global health I mean it's just it, it I mean it's, it's I don't know it's just it is fascinating to think about like affecting like health on a population level across the globe and you know it is like what like uniquely um links us is that like we're all vulnerable to poor health and we all value well-being so um anyway so yes i did i went through a lot of majors but then when i met seth i you know i was able to see like in a very practical sense like how you could do global public health research and i was just really fascinated by it um and Seth had, um, I was really interested in the South Africa work. Um, and I was really interested in the country and I was really interested in the dynamics of the culture. And um, I think I just, I just loved learning about it. I loved learning about it. And so <laughs> I had started working with Seth, I think as a junior and um and I had like the most basic of tasks but I loved it and you know it was like taping receipts and scanning documents but like it didn't matter to me I didn't care I would have done anything so um but then you know through that work is when um I had really um become exposed to the realities of the of the domestic HIV epidemic, and um, and it was just extremely eye opening mm -hmm. because it's not part of our you know how HIV looks in the U.S. is not part of our national dialogue. It it doesn't get the 
um, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And um, so Seth, you know, fortunately Seth had both a domestic and an international research program. And so as I learned more about what was happening um, in particular in the Southeastern US, I thought um, that actually like this is a really amazing opportunity. And, um, and, and so I took advantage of it as much as I could. And then when I had my like first opportunity to lead um, my own studies, I just couldn't believe what we were seeing in Atlanta. It was really, I mean, I understand that there are like quite a few people who had been doing similar work for many years, but this was like, when I started doing work in Atlanta, it was really like, I think like right before the CDC started releasing a lot of statements on what HIV transmission looks like among race minority and sexual um, identity minority individuals in the Southeastern US. It's not to say that people didn't know what was happening, but it was like right before the CDC really started putting out a lot of data on um, annual incidents and when people like really started to take notice. And so when I first started doing work in Atlanta, I really thought there was something wrong with their data collection. With your data collection? Or yeah, because when we were screening individuals for, um, at that time, I think it was my master's, um, it was something like, it was like 40% of our sample were reporting living with HIV. Oh, wow. And it was shocking. And so, um, and, and so anyways, we, you know, that to me, it was like, okay, I know what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. Because it was kind of like unbelievable to be like living through that moment where um, you know that this is a public health crisis, but, um, and I use that word with caution because crisis, you know, you can't, you can't sustain crisis. You have to find um, normality, even though um, normal, norm, normality with a strong sense of urgency to do something. So anyways, it was, um, I just knew that I would be doing that and, and doing this work for a while. And I think now it's been 38. So I don't know, it's probably been almost 15 years now. And um, I don't think I have lost sight of that at all. I don't think, I, I, I mean, I don't, I've, I've done like a little bit of pivoting and a little bit of deviating, but I always thought that um, this is just, just an area of domestic health that is so critical. Mm -hmm. so. Well, it's interesting because in both of your stories about how you got into HIV research, you have this moment where you're given an opportunity to, to dive into a, a program of research or, or to work with a mentor in the area. And then Seth, you go on to create this training program, which I you know, was a part of and um, to, to expose, um, you know, social behavioral researchers, I think it was originally psychologists, but it's kind of expanded out from there to, HA, to HIV research, which I think has been super smart. So it's, it's really neat that you've gone on then to sort of create this opportunity for other folks on a much, it feels like a, a much larger scale because you probably have had, what, like 30 people go through that program at no, more than that, because you have larger cohorts now. You've had a lot of people go through that T32 program. Yeah, I've, I've not. Um, yes, we have. So we've had it for like 15 years, the, mm -hmm. the training program in AIDS behavior research here at the University of Connecticut. And it's, it's 
been somewhat unique because most of these kind of training programs are focused more on postdoctoral training mm-hmm. and they're housed at medical schools. And our training program has been focused on doctoral students um, and it's housed in a traditional academic campus. So it's been, it's, it's been unique that way. And yeah, there have, there have been, um, I'd like to tell you the number, you know, but I, 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 I'll just make it up. We've had about 25 or 30, that's probably close, you know, 25 or 30 um, people that have gone through the program. And some of them have been remarkably successful. I mean, being part of that program totally transformed my career trajectory. I think I would still be doing like self-objectification research and probably doing that pretty poorly. <laughs> so I, w- I just wasn't great at it. <laughs> um, we talked about that a little bit in an earlier episode, but um, it, it totally, like if you had a moment of working with Jeff Kelly and you were like, I want to do that. I want to go do what he does. I mean, I think that being able to be a part of that training program was a moment for me of, I want to do that. I want to, I want to focus in that area. So it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's, was a, tremendous experience for me to go through it yeah well i'm grateful i'm I'm grateful for that so let's let's go back to southeast you know southeast united states so you've had a program of research going in in georgia and seth you started you must have started this research in the 90s right because you were at georgia state university in the 90s is that when you started working there yeah, well, you know, you, you you did anyone who would listen to this a favor by skipping that whole part where you said I moved around a bit and ended up at the University of Connecticut. <laughs> you can <laughs> dig into that if you want. Because I I really did move around quite yeah. a bit. So, yeah, because, um, uh, but I it, along that sort of checkerboard moving around, I, I mean, that the, the summary of that is basically that I kept taking jobs, but always ending up back with Jeff Kelly. So, so I, I worked with him on internship. I took a job and then I went, I left that job to work with him when, uh, at the medical college of Wisconsin. And then I moved to Georgia state where I was there for two years and then he recruited me back. And I, so, so always kind of like back and forth with Jeff Kelly, but there was a two year stint in there where I did, it was in 1996. It was when the Olympics were in Atlanta, that I'd moved to Georgia state university in Atlanta. And I started a program of research there, thinking I was going to be there for a very long time. But he recruited me back to the Medical College of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And when I moved back, I, I, you know, it was very obvious to me that I should keep that work going. I had just gotten um, a grant there. And it was a project that would have been difficult to do in Milwaukee because it was with people living with HIV and the population was much larger in Atlanta than in Milwaukee. And people at the Medical College of Wisconsin were starting to do a lot more work with people living with HIV. And so the population pool was not that large to now bring in another study. So I just said, look, I'll keep this study going remotely with the intention of just finishing that five-year study. Um, But that's not what happened. I just continued uh, to do all my work in Atlanta, all uh, all of my research has been in, um, in, in Atlanta in the surrounding area or in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, we've really established the presence there. And then 
when when Lisa, you know, started to to do her research and she her interest was there, it was just sort of the obvious place. Her work is distinct from mine. I don't do any of the uh, our the populations we work with are actually fairly distinct. But I don't know, Lisa, you've really not done a study that's focused on people living with HIV, right? No, it's true. Yeah, no, and I and in Atlanta, I haven't done a study focused on people that are at risk for HIV, not living with HIV. In South Africa, my work has been very much concentrated on at-risk populations and doing primary prevention, um, but not in Atlanta. So um, I think that's why Lisa and I have been able to work out of the same place mm -hmm. uh, well together um, because our programs of research are actually complementary. They're, they're, they're very distinct. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was looking over your your CVs and your funding, because I think what happens to a lot of people is you work together for a long time and then, or you may have, you know, trained together or something, and then you just start to look redundant on grants. It's like, why do we need both of you if you're have the same expertise or doing the same thing? So, you know, being thoughtful about how to complement each other with your research studies is, is a really smart way to do it. Yeah, I think it's always worked out. But it wasn't it wasn't a plan, right? <laughs> Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong. It really wasn't a plan. It's just your interests and my work. They just Yeah, I think that um I mean it is interesting how things work out well. But it's not like we ever like sat down and talked about it. Not, right. It's not like we were ever like long long term game plan is XYZ. I um I was interested, I mean, if, you know, if you kind of like think about our research program, I think of it as being like across the continuum of care. And I mean, we, we were doing this before continuum of care um, really entered the literature too. And so, but I was interested in prevention and I was interested in, um, in, in testing uptake and prevention treatment option um, uptake. Um, I, I even, you know, before PrEP had been um, FDA approved, I was, um, you know, kind of like how I feel now about long acting injectables, just kind of like waiting for these things to come out, waiting for PrEP mm -hmm. to come out, under, you know, being really interested in understanding how, um, how things like treatment as prevention impact prevention for people who are HIV negative, but potentially elevated risk for HIV or, um, understanding why you know what it would actually take to um for the for the cbc guidelines regarding hiv testing uptake to actually be implemented to, to actually occur not just be a guideline on paper but to actually realize that um so i remember i i recall always being interested in that and and when um when Seth and I first started working together and I, you know, first started having my own research studies, um, uh, I think it was just, it was just kind of a natural fit. And one thing that I think has worked out really, really well because we, you know, so Seth and I don't have, unlike a lot of researchers who are working out of clinics, um, our Atlanta work is not in a clinic. Mm -hmm. So, um, we have had to make considerable investments 
Um, and I don't mean, you know, even necessarily from a financial standpoint, I'm talking like a, um, from a research and being strategic and thoughtful and engaging standpoint um, regarding recruitment. Mm-hmm. And so, but one thing that's worked out really well is when we put these recruitment efforts in, we have studies for everybody. I mean, basically everybody. You know, I think. Oh, that's I, really I, smart. Yeah. Okay. You know, what you mean. I mean, for a long time now, we've always run multiple studies simultaneously. But of course, you can't. Um, you know, as a rule of thumb, you can't have people enroll in more than one study. So we've always, but, you know, but given like the variety of studies that we've been interested in, we, we basically always have something mm-hmm. for anybody, which is um, really what you need. And that's one, one main, one major piece of having an effective recruitment program. Yeah, that's really neat. So people see your flyer, they come in and then it's just, you know, where do you fit in this? Yeah potpourri of studies that we're going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's been a really effective way for having um, a presence and, and a strong base um, and just, you know, a strong foothold and being able to do this work. Um, I mean, we say Atlanta, but a lot of our participants actually come like from throughout the state of Georgia, but because right. as, as things have evolved too, we've done more and more and more work online. So then the limitation becomes, um, well, do we have an agency who we can partner with throughout the state of Georgia or, or you know, can you go over the state line? I mean, it kind of snowballs from there. But anyways, yeah, we have, we, we have, I think we've kind of always maintained studies for just about everybody. So while we're on the subject too, um, Valerie was telling me about, and I, you know, was reading a little bit about uh, that you guys do some of your uh, study recruitment in Georgia at Pride festivals. Well, well, that's a real, that's a real life thing. That's it's just all. so funny because it, I, as soon as Valerie said it, I was like, how come no, you know, how come not everyone's doing that? You know, like well, I, now, well, yeah, now everyone is doing that. So. <laughs> But, but but we were doing that um, before everyone was doing that. So. And we were doing whole studies <laughs> at Pride, not just recruitment. We were... Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Lisa's master's thesis was a Pride survey. Oh, wow. Was a Pride survey. I mean, we did... We, we have run the entirety of projects. Um, uh, Ron Stahl... Um, uh, he, he was the PI of a project that a five-year study that I was very much involved um, with that took place at multiple Black Gay Pride events across the um, U.S. So we would do about five or six events a year for about three or four years. Um, and the entirety of those studies were done at Pride events. Um, it's... Uh, it's a very, it's very interesting because it's like, it's just all your research efforts are just so extremely concentrated into three days. And there's like a lot of build up, a lot of build up, a lot of strategic maneuvering and events can be very fluid. You have events canceled, events moved, events rescheduled. I mean, it's very, you know, you do as much planning and preparing, planning and preparing, and you have like three or four days of controlled chaos. Um, but it is amazing in the sense, you know, in the number of people that you can 
reach. And as much as like, even I, I know that I, I always kind of lean towards like, let's try to do things remotely. Let's try to do things remotely. That's actually been a really nice balance too, because that will frequently remind me of like the importance of being able to have FaceTime with people. Um, and so that is one thing, you know, I, as much as I like doing studies remotely, I definitely understand the value of having FaceTime with people. And that's a really nice thing about Pride, about Pride events is that, you know, that connection and just being able to have like an organic conversation with somebody and like have it be spontaneous and it's, it's not controlled through the constraints of technology. So, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to all of it. With a Pride event, you can collect a tremendous amount of data in a short amount of time and you're gonna be able to reach people. You're not gonna be able to reach people any other way. Um, there are also a lot of challenges. I mean, I don't know, I could kind of like blabber on forever about it, so. <laughs> Well, I do want to underscore to Carly just how stressful and challenging it it sounds like it would be to collect data at Pride, um, given that Carly usually is collecting data at our local methadone clinic. And I just want to say that's that's a much better like data collection spot to go to, Carly. If you're asking me if I get a choice between the two. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're not asking. <laughs> well, any, anybody can do a survey at Gate Pride. But, um, but there is a, I, I really believe that there is a um, best practices sort of methodology okay. that, that results in very high quality data um, from, a, you know, a, a, a very good response rate. Um, yeah, but they're very, but to pull them off, I mean, anyone can show up at Cape Pride with a stack of surveys, but to pull off a Pride survey to get the kind of data that I believe you know, we've gotten, we, our group has been doing, had had been doing pride surveys on a fairly regular basis for a long time to where we were able to really establish at the same place at the Atlantic Gate Pride. So we were able to establish really, you know, time trends. We published papers uh, that looked at changes in, in behavior and how that's related to medications coming on scene and people's beliefs about HIV treatment and how that impacts people's behavior. Um, you know, from like 1997 to 2010, papers like that. Wow. Um, so there's a real consistency in our measures and our, our our procedures that allow for those kind of you know analyses to be robust. And and I think it has everything to do with um, like what Lisa was saying is it is a it is a a, a concentrated effort to pull to really pull it off. Um, with you know to walk out after three days with two different studies uh, that um, each of these studies has you know four or five hundred uh, participants, um, but but it's 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 not it's it's not as simple as it sounds. What are some of those best practices to to get it off the ground that would result in better data quality? Well. I always, uh, what we tried to do was have a presence there, like a community presence to sort of operate like a community-based organization. So what we would do is we would have, uh, we would rent booths, you know, we would have, uh, just like any other vendor in the vendor area, we would rent booths. Uh, we would, um, uh, you know, have uh, a real uh, systematic kind of presence. So I would take down there, you know, a half a dozen, eight, half a dozen, uh, students and then our full-time staff in Atlanta. So we had like 10 or 12 people out there. Um, 
everyone wearing, you know, t-shirts that we would make for the event that are very pride positive. Uh, we would have giveaways. So at our booth, you know, people would come and uh, there was always candy and giveaway items like fried rings and things that people might want. So that when they leave, um, having done a survey, someone says, where'd you get those fried rings? He's like, mm. over there, those people are doing the survey. Yeah, that's people in cash to do the survey. So we would show up with, you know, like $20,000 in $2 bills and, um, and pay people. But we would also, um, knowing that, you know, two or $3 uh, doesn't necessarily mean a lot to someone who won't necessarily buy you a beer at Pride. Um, okay. But, uh, but to make it a charitable event really was an incentive. So we would give, you know, what, uh, we would give people, what was it, Lisa? We'd give people two, two or $4 for doing the survey, but then we'd match that and give two or $4 to some designated AIDS charity. So it became a fundraising event. So by doing the survey, we buy you a drink and, and, um, and we'd also, you know, you'd be donating money to some local HIV organization. So is that sort of like really orchestrated kind of event? But then comes the survey. The survey has to be very short. The rule was it couldn't be more than five pages of questions. And those okay. questions had to be in 18 to 25. So hmm. that when you ask someone to do a survey and they look at it, the first thing you do is they feel it. So if it's thick, they're going to walk away. Then they thumb through it. And if it looks like a bunch of small type, they're going to walk away. So you have to be very careful about what you ask because every question comes at a cost. If you, know, for, if you ask something you're not going to analyze, then you've wasted um, the opportunity to get a question that you would analyze. So the surveys have to be very well um, carefully constructed to answer the research questions that you go in to answer for that study because you don't have a lot of space to be able to do that. It has to be short. People won't stand there for more than 10 or you know, five or 10 minutes to do the survey. It has to be completely anonymous. And, and people have to know that there can be no sort of like, well, sign this form, but do the survey. It has to be completely anonymous. Um, there, there are like a lot of pieces to that. Anything that can sort of attract people. So in Atlanta, Gay Pride, you know, was always kind of really hot. So we would have cold drinks for people. We'd set up fans. We'd have places for people to sit. Everybody does their own survey. We never interview people. It's always an anonymous survey done completely confidentially on clipboards, you know, so kind of a remarkable orchestrated event. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. But more than anything, it was a lot of fun. So everybody <laughs> out there was having a lot of fun. It's very stressful, um, Carly. It's very stressful. <laughs> we, were, we were all very tired at the end of the day, that's for sure, because okay. this is like a 12 or 14 hour day. But, um, but when you're out there, I mean, you're having a lot of fun with people. The, everyone's there to have fun. And at, at Pride, and so if we're not having fun, then we're we're out of place. So mm. we were definitely having a good time out there, fooling around with people and having just a good time. I'm imagining like a lot of U2 or Bruce Springsteen or something playing from your <laughs> for like from your tent. <laughs> no, that, that would that would probably repel people. Oh, okay. <laughs> your favorite bands repel. Yeah, then they'd be saying "boo" instead of Bruce for sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, that no, was a um, very productive time. We would, we would get several papers out of those surveys. That's neat. Which is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Yeah, Valerie, I'm, I'm up for the challenge, I think. So. <laughs> okay, noted. Well, 
Pride's not on for this year, but we'll, we'll see for now. Are you guys still doing these Pride surveys, or have you taken a pause? I haven't. You know, we have graduate students that are, but I've actually not been down there when they. So the, that that's more of like those. I think have been more like a lot. What a lot of other people are doing at gay pride surveys. Okay. Um, as opposed to our sort of machine, we haven't done one in a while. Mm. No, we haven't done. So Lisa, a while. Lisa has because you were part of that Ron Stahl study. They, yeah, they, I mean, when when we did the project, when I did the project with Ron Stahl, um, I mean, we we kind of our, I mean, I. It was definitely the same sentiment. Like it's it's much more than the survey. It's about engaging individuals and having fun and understanding that like they're there, they're like they're showing up there to have fun. And so mm. like if we're gonna make this work, like we better join them and how they feel and, and, and celebrate with them as well and try to collect a little bit of data along the way. And so um so with that project, we did we did most we did our data collection electronically, uh, and we also paid we compensated people higher in that study um, because we collected more data and it actually worked. We were able to do it. Um, and the reason why I say it actually worked is because you would assume that if someone's like going to a pride event that they're like they're there to like make quick stops and keep going, mm -hmm. but. Um, we also did HIV testing as well. Oh, at Pride. So, yeah, so um, we, I mean, people, you know, we asked people if they would be interested in getting an in, in HIV test done. Um, and then if, if they weren't, we asked them if they would be interested in providing a sample for us just, just you know, so that we could test to, um, just for our data, um, for data collection records. But we ended up doing it was a little it was a little different at the um, Black Gay Pride events. There are a lot of events that um, happen outside of like major urban green spaces. So maybe it's um, there's like small there's a lot of smaller events that occur, and a lot of like people waiting to get in to um, to uh, maybe a bar or, or whatnot a club. And so we were just, we would be communicating with individuals as they're, you know, uh, basically they have time on their hands. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do a bit more extensive surveying um, for that study, but we haven't, we, we haven't done it in, um, it's been at least a couple of years now. And um, I mean, I think a couple of things are going on. One, of course we have COVID. So I think all these events have been canceled. Right. Um, the other thing though, is that, you know, you see, like, we've all, I think we've all seen, like, there's just so much more um, online data collection. So, like, when we were doing, when, at least for my first Pride survey, that really wasn't an option. And I'm going to imagine that for SUS Pride survey, that absolutely wasn't an option. And so, but, like, so that has changed. Um, I still, though, have a strong preference for being able to do surveying in person. And um, I... I always have concerns about data collection and wondering, you know, data collection that's solely online. I wonder who's actually taking, you know, who's actually taking the survey and like what is actually being done to verify that these individuals are who they say they are. And, and I know that there's a lot of best practices around that. And okay. But that is one thing that I greatly appreciated about 
doing the um, pride studies is that um, you just have more of a handle on like who, who it is that you, you know that you're actually interacting with. And, and at least for me, I, I, that just instills greater confidence that we're really working with the individuals who we intend to be working with. And so um, I don't know, I would, I would like to do them again. I definitely would. It's, um, I mean, especially with, so one of the things that, like one of the um, re-emerging themes when we did the um, Black Gay Pride study was that um, there are just only so many opportunities to interact um, with as, as many individuals as we were able to, we were able to survey thousands of individuals and like they're just the, the, that type of opportunity does not come around very much. And so it was like, why not capitalize on that moment and on that space? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I would definitely like to do it again. I absolutely would. And I think, um, you know, as long as there's a need and an epidemic to address and, and, you know, we know that there are some interesting prevention options in the pipeline and, mm -hmm. and you know, my work has basically always been like everything outside of the strict biomedical piece I'm interested in. I, I'm, I'm interested in how people perceive vaccines and how they perceive prevention and, and well, what does it actually take to get people to use those items? Right. I'm interested right. in like in in reducing the divide between the advances that we make in biomedicine and, and actually um, people embracing these options. Mm -hmm. And in terms of HIV prevention, that's like always a moving target. It might be slow, but it's always a moving target. There's always kind of the next thing on the horizon. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, there's a ton of work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I know that you both have been thinking a lot about what we can take as, you know, social and behavioral scientists from HIV and apply it to what's going on with COVID. And you, it, I think you've been doing a lot in this space, including, um, you know, it seems like one of the first things that you did was to co-author this commentary paper that came out in the Journal of Behavioral Medicine, which was really nice in its approach of thinking through um, you know, at different social ecological levels, what are some of the lessons learned? So I was wondering if you could kind of take us through some of the, some of the big pictures that, or big picture takeaways, um, that we should think about applying to COVID from HIV based on how you've been thinking about it so far. Well, I think that, um, one of the, I don't, probably the challenge that keeps um, reemerging for me is that we know that sustained behavioral change is really challenging. Mm -hmm. It's not our strong suit as humans. <laughs> it's not, it's not a universal strength. Right. Um, and so how do you make that, you know, and, and right now, I mean, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it does feel like what we've experienced so much in addressing HIV, it's like, well, in the absence of the vaccine, you're really reliant on behavioral strategies. 
because even the biomedical strategies that we have are reliant on behaviors. Mm -hmm. Things need to be taken. People need to show up to appointments. I mean, there are a lot of behavioral strategies. There are, there, there are a lot of behaviors you have to engage in in order to get to those places in, in HIV prevention and treatment that we want to be at. Um, and that's, you know, that's absolutely the case for COVID. I mean, we don't have, um, I mean, we have supportive care for people who are really sick, but at this point, our greatest strategy is behavior change. And, um, and I think that, you know, looking at the, I mean, there's just no question, like looking at what we know about HIV prevention, we're best off when we have a multi-level approach to prevention, when we have the policy piece in place, which hasn't been in place, but when we have a policy piece in place, when we can construct um, structural interventions, and when we have some unity among individuals that they need to change their behavior. I think that like, and, and you know, and I think we've all observed this, like when COVID first hit, I think that you know, and we know this from like mobile data. I mean, there have been studies that have shown this. And, and I think most of us have probably experienced this personally when COVID first hit that, you know, there was so much uncertainty about what it was going to look like. And a lot of commitment to, um, to behavioral practices. And then, uh, you know, but then we learn more information and we adapt and we adjust. And I, I refer to it as like trying to figure out how to live with COVID, you know, with, with the broader context of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, been, I think Seth and I have actually had many interesting discussions about it because I think we come, I actually think that, I, I think we'd probably be in agreement on how the HIV behavioral literature is going to be related to the COVID behavioral literature but I think we both have different stances on like the extent to which prevention measures need to be implemented. Okay. Because uh, I'm very much, you know, I've been like, we have to find a balance somewhere. Like, well, we have, like, we have to keep these like facilities up and going. And, and you know, Seth will say like, no, like we need to get like prevention under control. It's not under control. We're going, and, and, you know, in somewhere, and, and I, I think, you know, Somewhere in the middle is is the truth, is the reality of it. And I but I think we're probably indicative of the broader America in terms of um kind of like what I mean, before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about what this is going to look like at universities. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I what I where I think I was probably at the beginning of this and where I am now is that we have very strong varied opinions and I I understand I can understand and appreciate all of that um and so I don't know I think in the I think in the approach in the behavioral approaches to HIV we can in, in our reliance on behavior change to prevent HIV is very similar to COVID it's just like the extent of the problem is on is on another magnitude mm-hmm. um I don't know, Seth. What do you think? Maybe we can go back and forth on this. Well, you know, I, I think it, I think it is true that um, as an emerging infectious disease, the the first month of COVID nineteen is basically the first decade of HIV wrapped up in a month. Oh wow! Oh my God! 
people are getting sick, they're dying. Oh yeah, but it's them, it's not us. Oh no, wait a minute, it is us. What can we do? Oh, we can change these behaviors. Oh great, for six weeks. Okay, now it's done, it's over. <laughs> We're all good. <laughs> We're all, everything's fine. Back to normal. Okay. But, yeah. you know, some, some people are still dying. So yeah, I mean, it's, um, it has been kind of remarkable on a lot of levels um, to live through that we are still living through. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and a lot of things are, you know, have been very interesting for me to see, like, um, suddenly everybody knows who Tony Fauci is. That's a, mm -hmm. that's good. And uh, it's also interesting, it's been interesting to watch him because I've watched him my whole career on HIV. And um, I guess this is sort of a public apology to Tony Fauci because I've spent the past 30 years saying, why can't he pay a little bit of attention to behavior change and stop talking about vaccine and therapeutics. Okay. <laughs> um, because I've been a, you know, I've been a great proponent of HIV prevention through behavior change. There are no vaccines. And when I, you know, when I got started, there were no therapeutics. But I've come to truly appreciate um, why he would not believe that people will actually change their behavior in watching the public response to COVID-19. Okay. And um, uh, how naive I've been to believe that people ever would. Wow, that's an interesting takeaway. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm sure that when he listens to this podcast, he'll, <laughs> he'll feel good about that, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, no, it's been, it is, it, it is a remarkable time, obviously, I think for everybody living through this. But I, um, yeah, I do think that, uh, you know, sort of what Lisa was alluding to, I think that this is true, that um, in, our, in, our, in our little world on university campuses, um, certainly not at a medical school, uh, those of us that do HIV behavioral research are in a unique position because we're the only ones who have been thinking about an infectious disease uh, at all. So, um, outside of medical schools, universities don't have really health, like health psychologists and medical anthropologists and uh, medical sociologists and nurses, um, people that are trained on academic campuses. Uh, no one is thinking about ever infectious diseases, except HIV is something right. that you actually work on. It's yeah. not like you find people on our campus who have been working on influenza or cryptosporodium or uh, meboid infection. You know, it's it, uh, infectious diseases, you know, um, was pretty much an area of medicine that was, you know, in the post-antibiotic world, infectious diseases were in post-antibiotic and, and post, you know, polio vaccine world. The, that was a field that was, it was, it was dying on the vine as much as psychiatry was in the 1970s. Um, and one of, the, one of the areas of infectious diseases that remained relevant, although not very relevant, was sexually transmitted infections. 
And of course, HIV changed all of that. It brought back an entire relevance to that area of medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, but in behavioral sciences, there's not an infectious disease that has a large number of people working on it other than HIV. And in fact, I'm not sure working on anything other than sexually transmitted infections, TB, things that are related to HIV. So we're like in a unique position. I think we have a unique perspective in our little world um, in thinking about uh, 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 a public health response, uh, an individual response, a societal response uh, to, this, to this pandemic. Well, and in particular, too, that it's occurring so um, that we have to think of this context occurring on a college campus. So there are people that do international work and, and can have um, can have long histories of involvement in those areas. But I, 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 I would be shocked <laughs> if people are really thinking of like controlling and infectious disease to the magnitude we will have to do that on a college campus, which is going to be one of the most challenging places in some ways to do so. Yeah. Um, and so uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just simply, you know, many places and many components of it have to be, I mean, probably about every single component of the college environment has to be considered in light of COVID. And that task is taking, is, you know, being taken on by individuals who probably haven't had to think that much about infectious disease. Uh, so you know, college campuses are a, a total, they're a total COVID-19 disaster zone. The Petri dish for COVID. So, you know, if you're interested in taking college courses and getting a degree from a reputable university, um, Cal State is doing that. So it's the social stuff, you know, it's all, it's everything about a college, about going to college is social. Mm -hmm. And there, and what is um, remarkable is there's no way that a university can provide that, that fulfilling social experience that college is and mitigate the spread of this infectious disease. Right. Highly contagious respiratory disease. So they can do right, you know, they have to try, they can do the best that they can. The options are don't do anything, which I don't think any university is doing, although it's possible, or you know, shut it down, which is what Cal State did. Most places are trying to do something in between, and it's gonna be um just awful for everybody, you know, because it's not the college experience that students want. And mm -hmm. students that can take the year off and can afford to not go and to can afford a gap year, uh, those those more um, privileged students will 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 do that right. because because if the frat house is closed, why would I bother? You know, if I can't go to games, you know, why would I bother? If if my classes are going to have people sitting six feet apart from each other and I have to wear a face mask, what's that going to do to my, you know, to try to pick up chicks in class? So <laughs> <I'm there. laughs> I mean, I think this is where like Seth and I like go back and forth on things because I, 
like when I say like we have to figure out how to live with COVID, I think about things like, so what does that mean for someone who's 20 years old to, you know, kind of like abruptly change their college career plans for say the next year or however long it takes. And I think that there's like this assumption that if students aren't, if students don't come back to campus, then like, oh, they must be home and being safe. But I, I don't make that assumption. I, I'm more along the lines of like, I actually think that there's a lot of value, value in a different way, though, in having someone who's 18, 19, 20, 21, being able, if they so choose, to have some on-campus experiences and that if we can do it in a way with thoughtfulness, and I understand that there's you know, there's a, there's a leap of faith there. If we can do it in a way with thoughtfulness that actually like maybe they are better off on campus as opposed to, I don't know where, I don't know where, because it's not like there are a lot of jobs out there. And I don't necessarily, I, you know, I've advised a lot of students and I think I probably differ from a lot of advisors and that I don't typically advise for a gap year because and my personal experience and in, in my observations, I think a lot of students take time off of education and then it's really hard to get back into it. Mm-hmm. So kind of like if you don't have the educational opportunity, I don't, I'm not conceptualizing this as a gap year in the traditional perspective anyways, because to me a gap year, if you're gonna do that, like go big, like go live somewhere else, you know, go learn about another culture for a year go make that documentary that you always wanted to do. I mean, like go, but like, that's not an option right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just not going to, I mean, we, we have not lived through travel restrictions. Like we're living through, I've never seen that in my lifetime. I don't think any of us have seen this in our lifetimes. And so I think that um, you can make the argument that with a, um, that there that there's potentially better um, value, better um, overall gain in being able to provide the most enriching experience that we can provide with limitations than students remaining at home. And I know, I mean, we've 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 surveyed students, and it's something that um, I look into on a daily basis. It's not for everybody. It's not, and you know, and there are plenty of 100% online options, and and that is an option that you should take if that's what you are most comfortable with. Um, but I, I just think it's more complicated than saying that we'll just shut down everything. Right. I just, I think there is loss, there is loss there that um, has to be appreciated too. This is the first time in my career where I'm looking around and I'm like, where are the ethicists? Like, why don't we have ethicists on all of the news channels? Because it is like it's a bit of a right and wrong question to some extent. And there are are people with PhDs in this stuff. And, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to land an answer to these questions. But I am, you know, I've just been curious about... um, yeah. How how are people thinking about that, and and how do you even begin to 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 do it? Because you're right, Lisa. Like a lot of the people who are who are on these committees, who are making these decisions. I mean, you know, they may not even have they may not have public 
health experience. They may not have experience thinking about, you know, behaviors within infectious disease epidemics. And then when you layer into that, just these questions of like, what is right or wrong to do at this time? I think it, it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. People have very strong opinions on it. And I think that when you, when, you know, in all likelihood, when you're faced with kind of like your first real dose of reality and addressing a public health crisis like this, you're, you're probably going to come from your own personal perspective first. Right. And it's all very different. I mean, my husband's a respiratory therapist. So the first week this happened, I was like, Oh my God. Like, you know, are you going to get terribly sick? Are you going to infect us? Like, should you go to work? You know, just a lot of things. And so for me personally, it was kind of like going through like all the phases of grief really fast and thinking of like, is this worth the paycheck? And we have small children and are, you know, do you have to quarantine? Should, should I move? I've, I've, should I rent a house? Mm-hmm. So we, you know, so we're not together. And so I think that for me, I went through all those phases really fast um, because there was no other option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of got to that, like living with COVID and like learning how to like, for me personally, mitigate risk, you know, came on like hard and fast mm-hmm. and, and listening to other people talk about that. I think I think others are also going through that as well. And if you're like in a situation where you have a lot of control over your environment and that feels most comfortable, well, that's like a very comfortable place to be. And like, I think those are the things that we project. Mm-hmm. I think people like, like all of us who have a public health background are probably combining that with what we know about the science. I mean, I think mm-hmm. comments about Altria are probably really telling <laughs> that, you know, Having having wanted to hear this national you know this this national stance on behavioral responses and waiting for that for thirty years and now seeing like why on a federal level it's so hard to implement um, is is very eye opening. I mean, it's um, like any good problem. There's just like <laughs> no, there's no quick solution. Yeah. And like, I think it's flexibility and being thoughtful and, um, but you know, that's not necessarily our strong suit as a nation. For sure. Well, um, speaking of people without a lot of flexibility and thoughtfulness, maybe, maybe it's too far, but Beth, you have this interest in denialism and the, and the anti-vaxxers. And I'm, I'm wondering how you've, um, what you're thinking about in terms of denialists and we've done some talking about the anti-vaxxers um within the context of covid yeah so you know the um my interest in AIDS denialism uh had that interest for a while and it's uh you know it's nice to see my old friends are back again yep (laughs) Uh, the same you know it's the uh it's the same bag of nuts, and so they actually um, the the same players have uh, you know got you know because there's a group of these AIDS denialists who um, say that the tests for you know for HIV aren't um, valid. There you know there there may not even be uh, such a virus, but if there is, these tests certainly can't. So there's just all this sort of crazy talk in uh, by these pseudoscientists. And they're just saying the same thing about COVID-19. And 
they do intersect. They're not the same people. They do intersect with the anti-vaxxers. The anti-vaxxers are actually quite different. But this is also um, a, a field day for anti-vaccine movement because, and, and, and one of the things that's a little disturbing is there are, when, when anti-vaxxers do and AIDS denialists do is they'll latch on to this one little thing that um, they like cherry pick, you know, they look for this one little thing to say, see, we're right. And what's been going on a little bit with uh, COVID-19 because of the panic and the urgency is we're giving them things to say, see, we're right. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So, so the rapid development of vaccines and the money that's involved in them and the, and the federal and international agencies and, the, and, the, and, and Bill Gates, all of these, all of the, the constellation of the conspiracy that fuels the anti-vaxxers um, are like, you know, see, see, this is what we're talking about. And, you know, every time that there's a paper retracted, there was a paper retracted yesterday in the New England Journal, you know. It was a big it, one, yeah. Yeah, it does not help us. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> and, and so the, um, you know, the denialists are happy to latch on to the kind of thing and say, see, the, you know, there's nothing to this all along. And how can you trust any of what they're saying? And if, if they wouldn't have been called out on that one, it would have never, they would have never retracted. You know, this is, it's such a, um, such a magnifying glass that they use to find something to hook onto. Um, and in the, in, the, in, the, in the flurry, you know, the panic, we're unfortunately giving them fuel to, for their fire. And there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, there's, um, it's not like I think that science can do anything different or be any more careful. And the urgency is pressing. It's just, I think we have to be more vigilant um, uh, about trying to combat uh, the, the, the anti-vaxxers and the denialists with science and medical literacy and, um, and trying to drown them out with, with facts. That's, that's really the, the, um, the, the treatment for these problems. Um, but yeah, we're, 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 it's an interesting time in so many ways. And that's another way that it's an interesting time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was impressed or I was surprised maybe initially when you mentioned that the anti-vaxxers have been out and loud since like February. Yeah. I mean, that was a, before people were like really starting to get afraid of COVID, at least in the States. And then B, there's no vaccine. So just the fact that the, you've got these um, prominent anti-vax folks who are really making a lot of noise well in advance of a vaccine actually existing. It's, you know, like, how can they say that the vaccine is dangerous or the vaccine's no good if there is no vaccine yet? I just, I thought that was really interesting. And it kind of speaks to just the, the, to me, the idea that like, it's not, it's not about the specific vaccine or it's not even about like the specific um, disease that we're talking about, but it's just this, like this overall, you know, with conspiracy theories, it's more of this overall mistrust or it's this overall movement that gets sort of like applied and reapplied um, in these different contexts. 
Yes, exactly right. When I was doing um, some of the research for, uh, you know, a COVID conspiracy paper, one of the things that I found really jarring was that these, you know, anti-vaxxers or these conspiracy theorists are citing research articles, you know, that are coming out of the NIH to like further prove their own points. And it's like, well, hang on now. One of these things is not like the other. Like, how did we, how did you spin that and get that back? Right. Welcome to my world. Right. Now that's exactly what they do. And um it is it is it is a it is kind of a remarkable trap um it's yeah it's it's exactly what they do uh it's it's more than interesting so you you've been looking at the anti-vaxxers so i've been uh very particularly using my reddit skills uh and scouring (laughs) all those subreddits so um yeah i've i i got really deep into it for for a few days there where i was really absorbed in all the conspiracy theories and everything did you did you did you run into um dr tenpenny uh i don't know you know i have uh such limited yeah she may not be she may not have a presence on reddit but she has a um a significant presence in Facebook. Ah. She's yeah, she's she's a piece of work. Yeah, I have such a limited uh, you know space in my memory that um, I didn't bother committing that one uh, you know in there forever. But uh, I yeah. did definitely get pretty uh, pretty friendly with the whole like Bill Gates. Apparently, is this really terrible guy? You know, and five uh, G, boy howdy. Hope they don't, yeah. you know, make yeah. that. You know? Yeah. So Dr. Tenpenny was posting about 5G back in early March. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and she's and she is. It, it is interesting what you were saying, Valerie, because it is true that they they're like priming the pump. There is no vaccine. What the anti-vaxxers all up in arms about COVID nineteen? It they're priming the pump. Mm-hmm. You know, they and so they're already laying the groundwork for and. Uh, the, we're not, you know, don't don't take that vaccine. And I, I think that they're the, the soil is going to be really rich for them, because reasonable people will be concerned about being vaccinated because of all of the, you know, the legitimate discussion around rush to, you know, we're having everyone is saying Tony, you know, is, is saying we're having to skip a lot of the um, early phases and combine phase one in phase two vaccine development to move this much faster. It takes, you know, 10, 15 years to develop a vaccine if you get one ever at all. And so to within a year would be unprecedented if they actually are able to develop a vaccine in a year and right. bring it to market in any near, near that time. It'd be um, an incredible achievement. Uh, and it will be um, met with a great deal of skepticism and so the you know uh, it's going to be very fertile soil for these otherwise easily ignored people to get traction. Don't be too surprised if they don't end up in um, in uh, in places like CNN talking about oh yeah uh, about why we should be concerned about vaccines. Well, it's really interesting to me because in some of the you know literature digging that we've all been doing together, we found that one of the best ways to like deal with conspiracy beliefs um, is to warn people about them before the cons- they even hear about the conspiracy. Yeah. 
And these anti-vaxxers seem to be doing that in reverse. <laughs> so like before, you know, people even start learning about an actual vaccine or yeah, they're getting out ahead of it. So it's like, they're, they're ahead of the game. <laughs> well, they ahead. Are. Yeah. They're, they're, they are. Do you really think though that, um, that I don't know, I think you were kind of going in this direction, Seth, I think it's a really interesting discussion point that like, like kind of like what's science to do about it? So, um, I mean, I even sometimes like with COVID, sometimes I'll see a, um, a headline and I'm like very science. <laughs> I love science, okay? Sometimes I'll see a headline on like CNN and it's like experts say, it will be like blah, 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 according to experts. And I even roll my eyes sometimes because I'm like, okay, but like we do this, we put these things out and then with COVID, it's just so fluid that like two days later we change it. And like, it even irritates me and I am fully on board. And I'm very empirical. And so I'm wondering like, could we really, and I'm sure there are people who do this, but like the need to really think through how science intersects with the general public is just so urgent. And I'm like, we, we have to stop doing a shitty job. Okay, there, I just. The, the thing about this that's been most remarkable have been the mo mathematical modelers. Ah, it's exhausting. It's, it's yeah, no, what they've, what, they've done a great deal of harm actually, you know, because the public doesn't understand the nuances of assumptions that go into modeling. And no matter how hard people like Tony Fauci try to do to, you know, to reduce those, those anxieties and to sort of explain the caveats, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's way too complex. And what I, it's become very clear to me that there's, a, there's, there's groups of mathematical modelers who are like, really like being on TV. And yeah. if they just change their model today, they're on TV tomorrow. And there was a period of time, there was like about two or three weeks in there where they, 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 the same modelers were talking about the changes in their model every day for like two weeks. You know, like, you know, 20,000 people are gonna be dead. No, now we're saying it's gonna be 30. Well, we didn't know that those states were gonna open up. So now we're saying it's gonna be 45. And it's like, just stop. I mean, it's, it's good to be known and on TV for the quality science you do. It's bad to be known and on TV for the rapidly changing, no one can understand mumbo jumbo that you're saying. It's, it's a little frightening, actually. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help. It doesn't us. help. It, it's hard. It doesn't. Even as a stigma researcher, uh, you know, folks in the media have been asking me, like, what does stigma look like in COVID? And it's just, it's, and this was early, this might have been two months ago. And it's like, well, I can tell you based on, you know, what people are reporting in the media and things, but we, but even though, and I can make some pretty good educated guesses um, based on what we know about infectious disease stigma overall about what it's, what it's looking like and what it's going to look like. And of course there was the whole racism um, dynamic in the U S that was pretty, you know, reported, but um but even that, which is, you know, it's hard to get that totally wrong. I felt sort of uncomfortable because I was like, we don't, you know, hold on. We don't have the data yet. Like we don't have the, but, but people really want to know, like, tell me what it looks like now. And it's like, I don't know how I would have gotten, how I would have gotten all that data yet. Like, how can I, uh, so it's an, it's an interesting moment of like people really wanting information and, you know, 
trying to catch up with that. I mean, I think like even for me, I when Donald Trump won the election, I was like, that's it. I'm never looking at another poll again, ever, ever. I don't know like what y'all are doing, but y'all failed. (laughs) You failed. You failed. Okay, all your polls, you failed. And that's not good. It's not good when like it's lost on me and um, because this is what this is what I've committed my life to. I mean, I'm not a modeler and, you know, in the times I've done modeling, I um, I mean, I know like we've talked about this in the past. I mean, you put the assumptions in um, a bit like reading tea leaves and might be right, might not be right. But you like understand that and you like are you're processing all this information in the context of what you put into the model. But um, that type, that process just does not bode well for a two minute sound bit or, you know, a four minute to read article. It's just like those worlds just don't come together well. Yes. So I don't know. All right. Well, we but, should. But, but I, should, I should say, though, that uh, just to be, to be fair. I, I brought up the modelers um, and I mentioned retractions and I mentioned the rush um, and I would, uh, but, uh, but, I, but I also feel then that I have to say the vast majority of the science reporting that I've seen has been good and, mm-hmm. and balanced. And I think that, you know, I know, I know some of these people, I don't know a lot of these people, but I know some of these people um, I, you know, from my life in HIV, who I know some of these people who are on TV and in the media around um, COVID-19. And I think for the most part, they're actually doing a really good job. But the issue and why we're talking about this, I think, is because it just takes like one retracted paper. Right. It just takes saying one thing in, in a um, bit of, you know, in a non so certain, ambiguous way. And it gives um, it can undermine public trust, but also it gives the people who are out to undermine public trust the opportunity. Um, and so, but for the most part, I think people are trying to be responsible. You know, there, um, it's been interesting to see how people that have worked in HIV that are broader in public health, they're not like me, I'm really one trick pony. Um, but there are a lot of people in public, in HIV, who have a broader public health um, portfolio. Uh, and, I, and I'm really proud of them, actually, to, to see some of these, uh, to see some of the colleagues um, really focusing on this problem um, and trying to communicate responsibly. Um, so that's been, in, in some ways, inspiring and, and certainly um, a source of pride for me. Um, but then there are these other things that are just like a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, I'm going to steal your line, Seth, about priming the pump, but it, you know, it doesn't take much to prime the pump at all, right? Like it's that one, like you're saying, it's, it's that one redacted article. It's the one, and they hang on to them and then it's, they circulate. The articles really get, yeah. Know, probably well, if, more... if, the, if, the, if our president ever like, you know, comes out of the bunker and, and will actually leave the white house because he's afraid of, you know, 21 year olds with signs, if, 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 if he ever, we ever hear from him again, you can 
if you ever hear from him again on COVID-19, which we might not actually, you, I can guarantee you that if he ever talks about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine again, he'll say, well, we know that that study was retracted, that it was garbage, that it was. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're but exactly right. Yeah. Because, because, because he is a part of that mindset. He, he, he is as much an anti-science denialist as we're ever going to find. Right. And so he won't let that go by. Nope. I'd be happy to trash the entire scientific enterprise in the New England Journal of Medicine um, over this one thing. Yeah, and you've done some really interesting, you know, thinking, Seth, I know we've got to wrap it up, but you've done some really interesting thinking about, we, Carly and I had both read your paper looking at what Pence, Putin, Mabeki, and their HIV-related crimes against humanity, and we, we'll, we'll go ahead and recommend all readers, all readers, all listeners to read it, and then just to think as we were that you could just do Pence, Putin, Mabeki, Trump, and their crimes against HIV, or, and their HIV and COVID-related <laughs> crimes against humanity right now. Because I felt like we, you could just like update that paper, you know, and re-release it, and <laughs> did be, you know, relevant yeah. right now. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true that um, a, those guys have never been held accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, President Trump isn't being held accountable either for the, you know, for the, the number of, of senseless and needless deaths that occurred because of the way he handled this pandemic in this country in the first months. We lost six weeks mm. because of him. Well, as a social behavioral science scientist, I'm really, you know, I'm grateful for the all hands on deck approach to this. I'm grateful that you guys are all hands on deck. I feel like to try to understand this and, you know, to both of you for creating spaces, both um, at AIDS and behavior for people to share their insights um, on COVID quickly through the, you know, the rapid um, papers that you've been publishing. And then also, you know, the Facebook community, which is really, I think, you know, really taken off for HIV researchers to connect. Um, so I think it's a real testament to, you know, your leadership in the field to be able to get both of those up and going. But, you know, and then just more personally, you know, I wouldn't be doing sex and drug science if it weren't, you know, for, for Seth's mentorship. And I certainly wouldn't be having as much fun with it as I have been lately if it weren't for- well, It's, it's very good. I'm, I, you know, I was gonna let this go by, but it's very uh -oh. good that you, that you you use the word science in this context and that you use the word research in the other context. Because I noticed this, if you would take out the word research and if you would take away the word science, what you have just said over the past hour and a half is that you owe it to me for exposing you to HIV and getting you into sex and drugs. <laughs> That's gonna be the tagline. Yes, just right there. Nice. I can feel it already. That's the tagline for this episode. Like, thanks to Seth Gallichman for getting Valerie Earnshaw into sex and drugs. And, and exposing her to HIV. Yeah. And so you, <laughs> at least so to keep so, the party going. <laughs> so so you, you really have to make sure that you say that um, yeah. it's HIV research and sex and drug science. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes. Uh, and thank you for your time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
All right. So just as a reminder, we're trying something new on the podcast here and the undergrads who helped produce the show have listened to it and they pointed us in the direction of a few things that we may want to clarify for folks <laughs> who are not, you know, just us <laughs> who are listening in. So the first thing was that, that they pointed out was that Lisa and Seth are doing research in the South and, you know, they're up in Connecticut. We talked about this a little bit on the show, but they really want to a little bit more detail as to why they're doing research in the South and what the HIV epidemic looks like down there. So I thought that I would share some sort of like basic epi data or epidemiological data on the HIV epidemic in the U.S. So I pulled an HIV surveillance report for 2018. And so in 2018, there were 36,400 new HIV cases. And the HIV incidence, so this number of new cases, was 19,200 in the South, which is 53% of all U.S. new infections. Which is wild. It is wild. So I wanted to also read which states count as the South, because I think you're going to be surprised. So Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware. I didn't know that Delaware counted as the South. Yep, we're... Yeah, I did. You did? Unfortunately, yes, I did. Yeah. Was that the mind-blowing fact? <laughs> that is the mind-blowing. I did not know that we count as the South. I grew yeah. up in Pennsylvania, and I always thought of myself like as just like Mid-Atlantic, like not a thing really, actually. Is that just like something that... Only to everyone itself? above Delaware, <laughs> honestly. So okay. uh, Delaware is really interesting, though, because it gets to pick and choose how yeah. it identifies in the okay. continental U.S. So in some yeah. statistics... Um, will be Northerners and in some yeah. statistics, yeah. Well, I should have known that I wasn't going to blow a native Delawarean's mind with, you know, how Delaware is categorized. Yeah, no, probably. <laughs> <in> Pennsylvania. <laughs> yep, yes, exactly. Yep. All right. Well, then there's like a bunch of other states. Um, there's a lot of states <laughs> in the South. But, and then know, it's all the regulars. Delaware down um, and then all the way out to Texas. Oh, wow. Essentially. That's... Yeah, Texas is included. So... Huh. Um, all right. And then you hit the West, essentially. Okay. And then, you know, continue with our numbers. There were 19,200 in the South, but then there were 7,500 in the West, 5,000 in the Northeast, and 4,700 in the Midwest. So that's just, it's a lot of cases for one, you know, one section of the country. Yeah, for sure. All right. Then if we break this down by race and ethnicity, which I wanted to do because, um, you know, in part, I guess because Lisa and Seth focus a lot of their research, not all of it, but a lot of it on black men who have sex with men specifically. So we had 15,300 of those new cases were among black and African-Americans. So this is 42% of all new HIV infections across the U.S. were among black and African-Americans in 2018, which is quite concerning because they're only 13% of the population. Right. And then we see more disparities if we look at Latinx folks. So 10,300 of those new infections were among Latinx folks. And they're only, um, that, so that's 28% of new infections and they're only 18% of the population. And then 9,000 were among whites. So that's 24% of the HIV infections. But white people are 77% of the U.S. population. So it just really goes to show that this is just, it's not equally distributed. No, super race. disproportionate, yeah. Yeah, both by race and ethnicity and by location. Yeah. So 
a few years ago, I think that the New York Times actually ran an article really highlighting that um, this epidemic is is an epidemic of disparities in the U.S., both in terms of location, race, ethnicity, and then if we layer in um, LGBT health disparities, 66% of um, the infections in 2018 were among folks who were having, were among men who have sex with men, essentially. So gay men or bisexual men. Right. Yeah. Wow. We need to do better. Right. Yeah. Well, definitely super grateful that Seth and Lisa are continuing to do this work because, you know, I think that a lot of people, you know, when you hear about, you know, the AIDS crisis, like you think back to like, you know, gay white men in the 80s and and -hmm. that's about it, you know. And so it's like this really highlights the fact that no, this work is still super important and it still needs to be done to address these like wild disparities that we have here. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that the the face has really changed over the years. And unfortunately, it's not changing a whole lot. So we need right. to do better here for sure. So exactly. All right. So the second thing that they raised was what's a 332, which is actually a T32. <laughs> <laughs> so a T32 is something we talked about in the episode and it's a training program. So it's sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. And essentially, um, the idea of the training program that Seth is the lead of, which is called the Social Processes of AIDS Training Program, is to take people who are from other fields, who are who are doing their doctoral dissertations and they're studying in other fields. So for me, it was you know studying psychology, and then to get them to apply what they're learning to the HIV epidemic. And the idea is really if we could get more people from more diverse backgrounds trying to solve, you know, issues that are unfolding in the HIV epidemic that we can make sort of like faster, better progress towards solutions. So maybe we could actually like, you know, change those disparities <laughs> or get right. rid of them. Yeah. So what's I think really fun here is that Seth has been running this program for 15 years and Lisa was in the first year of the program and she actually now co-leads it. And I was in the second year of the program. So I think, you know, it's been a, it's been a great program and I'm, like I said on the podcast, I mean, I just would have gone in a totally different like direction. Who knows what I would have been doing. <laughs> right. Didn't, so yeah. the moral of the story here is that the, the T32 is cranking out some really badass researchers that are For doing sure. some really solid, awesome work, especially in the field of HIV. Yeah. Me aside, they're all doing really great. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. All right. And then the last thing that they wanted some clarity around was what's up with this retracted paper on COVID? So what is a re- what does it mean for a paper to be retracted? Um, where was it retracted from? And what what did those papers originally report? So there have actually now been two papers that were retracted. They were retracted from two of our big deal medical journals. So, so from the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. And they were both um, focused on COVID. So the Lancet Journal looked at uh, chloroquine and hydrochloroquine, and it concluded that these medications might be dangerous to patients. And then the second article in New England Journal of Medicine found that some blood pressure drugs might protect against COVID-19. So both of these have been retracted, which essentially means that they were published 
And to be published, a paper has to pass peer review. So it's sent out to other scientists. They read it and they, they kind of like give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. So it had been reviewed by other, by other scientists and it might have been like two or three other people. They gave it a thumbs up. They said it looks good. Then it was published. And then I think what happened was people started looking at the paper in closer detail. They started looking at the data and there were a lot of like flags on the play, essentially. They, you know, people reading the articles thought that there, um, there were some inconsistencies, I think was the language that had been used. And interestingly, both studies were led by the same professor. They relied on the same database that people, and like people hadn't really heard of this database before. So um, with some further investigation, it was concluded that there were problems in the database. And so both papers were pulled back. So they were retracted. And so the journal basically essentially says like, you know, we're not, we're not as clear on whether these are good results. Um, so I think that this is really tough because on one hand, you know, everyone's calling for like fast science to address COVID. Like we're really reliant on figuring out like just how long can COVID last on surfaces or can I go running behind <laughs> like someone right. might be coughing or we, so much science is needed for vaccines. So we're really trying to like put the gas on science, but then at the same time, science is just really slow. Like yeah. everything from running our studies to really verifying that the results are true um, is a slow process. Like typically for, a, if I am asked to review, peer review a journal um, article, I'll get like at least a month to do that. And now reviewers are being asked to review things in like a week or less to try to keep up with the demand for, um, for just more information about it. Right. And, you know, the, the back to, you know, the point that Seth was trying to make is that, you know, I think that the, the bigger problem here that we'll see in the future, like the ripple effect is that, you know, all the non-believers or the, you know, conspiracy theorists are going to use this and jump on it for any, you know, solid good science that does come out about COVID, especially related to a vaccine. You know, this is going to be all the ammo that they think they need and, and, you know, likely probably is all the ammo that they need to get more people to believe them when they say, you know, like, yeah, but look, they put out this science and we learned that that's not true. So, you know, who's to say this is going to be the same and it's going to be this, you know, the naysayers are, are going to have some ground to walk on. So it'll be interesting to see how this sort of unfolds in the future as more science kind of comes out. Yeah, we're all really concerned actually about conspiracy theorists over in our lab right now. So um, yep, yep, for sure. We'll probably have an episode coming at you yeah, pretty quickly go. about that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully we all, you know, in this moment of time that we can all take some time to reflect to as scientists about, you know, how, do, how we do things and how we can do things better. I think that this is really a call to action for sort of some self-examination for kind of for science um, as a larger picture. So absolutely. Yeah. A huge thanks to the Stigma and Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware for their help with this episode, especially Alyssa Leung and Natalie Brousseau. The episode was researched by Sarah Lopez and Christina Holsapple, and it was also edited by Christina Holsapple. And as always, thank you to City Girl for the music for the podcast. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>